This is the Menopause Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Gordon. Now here at the Menopause Movement, we've surveyed over 50,000 menopausal women. And through this, we've discovered that the number one cause of menopausal suffering for our clients is weight gain. Now you've said things like, how do I lose the mental belly? I don't recognize myself anymore. How can I get me back? When menopause hit me out of the blue, I had no idea what was happening. And when I gained about 50 pounds overnight, I hated what I saw in the mirror. The menopause movement exists to provide world-class transformational education to women who are suffering from the symptoms and effects of menopause. And we're here to give you the education you need to get your life back. We want menopause to be the best time of your life. I mean, it is for me, and I want that for you. After years of trial and error, I finally cracked the code with my menopause weight, and now I want to share with you how I did it. I realized that what helped me the most was a challenge. So we've created a challenge for you to help you lose your mental belly. Simply go to menopausemovement.com forward slash challenge to sign up. I'll see you there. What's up, everyone? Uh, before we get started, I wanted to give you an update. Remember a few episodes ago when Lucy Seligman was on and I was complaining of this uh, frozen shoulder on my left side? Well, I'm happy to report that after that episode, I braved another shot in the arm, so to speak, and I went to about 15 physiotherapy sessions. And the end result is I have a 90 to 95% function of this arm without any pain. So isn't that awesome? I'm so excited that I was able to do that. And so I just wanted to give you that update. So uh, anyway, today we welcome Kathleen Finley to the podcast. She's the president of a local not-for-profit farm called Glenwood. And I've learned a lot about farming and the importance of regional cuisine from her. She's a leading educator in the small farm movement here in New York. And she's been a leader in the regenerative agriculture movement for most of her career. She's also been instrumental in organizing women who want to work for environmental progress. Since arriving at Glenwood in 2012, she has refined the organization's mission and become a national figure in the world of progressive agricultural nonprofits. Under her leadership, Glenwood has become a premier learning hub for food and farming professionals. Previously, Kathleen was a director of Harvard Center for Health and the Global Environment, where she developed and shaped programs to educate communities about the correlation between human health and the global environment. She created a farm-friendly food policy for dining services and produced a comprehensive online guide to nutritional, seasonal eating, and cooking in the Northeast. She also co-founded the Harvard Community Garden, the university's first garden dedicated solely to the production of food, produced two award-winning documentaries, Once Upon a Tide and Healthy Humans, Healthy Oceans, and co-authored the book Sustainable Healthcare by Wiley uh, in 2013. She also founded Pilates, a membership organization working to advance women's leadership in the sustainability movement. She holds a degree in biology from UC Santa Cruz and a master of science in journalism from Boston University. She's authored numerous reports and publications and acts as an advisor to various environmental and community organizations, including Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney's Agricultural Advisory Board and Senator Kristen Gillibrand's Agricultural Working Group. If you've ever wondered what a CSA is or how to get more local produce into your diet, this episode is definitely for you. During the podcast, we talk about Kathleen's experience with menopause, how she came to New York, what is regional cuisine, the importance of community in developing regional cuisine, the role a CSA plays in regional cuisine, where you are, where I am. 
GMO crops versus GMO crops versus hybridized crops, regional cuisine in the Hudson Valley specifically, our health and how it benefits from whole real regional food. Asking for help to complete any project, especially as a woman and what that means. And stay to the end to find out the role women play in the national regional food movement. At the end of the episode, visit menopausemovement.com forward slash blog, where you can find the show notes plus the links to the books and resources mentioned in the episode. And if you enjoy the episode, be sure to leave a written review, like and subscribe on YouTube and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. So you're always the first to know when each episode is released. And hey, I want to know what's your biggest menopause struggle? Let me know on Instagram at Dr. Michelle Gordon or on Facebook also at Dr. Michelle Gordon. And thanks again for being a part of the menopause movement. Now let's get to Kathleen. All right, Kathleen Finley, welcome to the Menopause Thanks. Movement Podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. I'm so happy to be here, finally. So just, just as a little bit of background, um, so I've known Kathleen for, gosh, I want to say about seven, eight years, uh, and she's she's in charge of this regional farm that, that we support, and it's and she's going to tell you more about it, but meeting Kathleen, has it just really changed my life, not only in the way of the, the type of food that we get, and the the CSA from her from her farm, but more along understanding what's locally available and how to how to have more of that in my life and just the options. And the other thing is, is that Glenwood is such a beautiful place. And every time I drive in there, it's just like this, this feeling of peace just kind of comes down on me with the rolling hills and the and it's just beautiful. So welcome. Welcome. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here talking yeah. with you. So this is the Menopause Movement Podcast. And so the first thing I want to I find out from you is, let's talk a little bit about your menopause experience and how maybe food played a role for you. Yeah. I mean, let's use the present tense. It's happening right now as we speak. Yeah. So I'm sort of okay. perimenopausal. My periods are starting to get irregular and heavy and all of that fun stuff. Right. And so far, not a ton of symptoms, but it does feel like, you know, I'm like consuming all this information, including your amazing work, <laughs> trying to be as informed as I can as I go mm -hmm. through this pretty um, dramatic process and how... Yeah. I'm just constantly amazed that we talk we spent so much talking time talking about adolescence and adolescence <laughs> for women in particular. And then it's like, yeah, you're gonna go through this other huge hormonal shift and chapter change and life change, but we don't really talk about it that much. Yeah, it's like um, this secret society that no one's yeah. talking about. And yeah, and that's that and that's the reason why we have the menopause movement. Yeah. You know, more than anything else, it's just like let's break the silence and start talking about it and make it better, make life better. Yeah. But I feel yeah. like for any kind of disruption, the key to resilience is, you know, going in feeling strong and, and good. So I do feel yeah. like in general, you know, how you eat is one of, as you know, the most important indicators of how you feel and your health. And, um, you know, I feel strong going into this, into this yeah. change. Yeah, um, that's good. And then I can't wait. I can't wait to get to the other side. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's 
so so like I, I tell this story of like when when I first you know when menopause started hitting me and it was such a big disruption and I had no idea what was going on and when I started I had you know my periods had kind of stopped and I had I had spent many years not you know not having a period on purpose because I I got like really weird when I had periods and so then when I took the hormones I got a period and I was like uh uh-uh. uh I, I I would rather deal with bad moods. Than, than get that, you know, but but the problem is, is that there just isn't a lot of education out there, and so that's that's what the menopause movement is for, and 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 it's there's there's more coming out, but you know the whole idea is to talk about it. So you're working through that now, but let's talk a little bit about your background. Like, how did you come to Glenwood, and and where were you before? Yeah, um, my interest in this work stems from a deep love of the natural world. Actually, I grew up in California. I spent a lot of time outside in nature, and that created a sense of wonder in me around the natural world. And then I wanted to study biology and really understand how the natural world works, and then started learning about all the ways that we depend on nature for our health mm-hmm. and well-being and the threats to nature and that means threats to us. So that led me to kind of a interesting path of ocean conservation and an initiative around ocean and human health in my maternal home of Bermuda. My mother was born and raised in Bermuda. And from there, that led me to Harvard Medical School where I was okay. working at a center that was founded by physicians who were using the voice of the medical community to bring awareness to how how the impacts to the natural world ultimately affect our own health and well-being. And I was there for a long time, and that work was awesome. We looked at how the loss of biodiversity is affecting human health, how climate change is affecting human health. And I started really focusing on the connections between food, health, and the environment because I eat. (laughs) And eating is such a fundamental connection to the natural world that as a communicator, it felt like, you know, that everybody can relate to how we eat. And we can start to think about um, how what we eat depends on nature and the threats to that, to those ecosystems ultimately affect us through food. I remember when I lived in California and I drove up to to Northern California for something, uh, you know, to go visit somebody or drove through there on my way to Washington or something. And, And I remember just seeing miles and miles and miles of farmland and thinking, you know, this is how we get fed. Yeah. And I, you know, I grew up in the 80s. And now, I mean, you think about like some of the changes that are happening in farming now, where everything's going small again. Back in the 80s, all the little farms were getting eaten up by corporations. And it's it's interesting, because I liken what happened in the 80s to farms to what's happening to medicine now, right? And you see all this consolidation in medicine and, and how there's almost no small practices anymore. And right. And, you know, I had a small practice and I've closed it. And that's mostly because of corporations coming in and taking over and kind of putting their corporate will um, on us. And that happened in farming. And I just remember, I remember it was so disruptive to the people who were, you know, they couldn't make a living. And so then they lose their farms because it was the margin was so small. And now what you do at Glenwood is you teach people like, how to farm and you've got, you know, you're involved with the seed bank and, and all those things. And if anybody who is listening to this podcast or watching this podcast on YouTube is a big foodie, this is a good episode for you, mostly because, you know, it, when you think about regional cuisine, I I, I think I'm, I, when I watch that mind of the mind of a chef on, on Netflix with the guy who 
who was uh, in like Carolinas and they'd brought beans from Africa and they were talking about, did you, did you, have you seen that one? I haven't seen that one. Yeah. But it just, it just made me think about all the work we're doing at Glenwood. And so yeah. I guess this is a good segue for us to talk about what let's, let's just define what is regional cuisine and why is it important to us? Yeah. And I mean that, that reality that you describe in the 80s is really apt. And that reality is all through the Midwest, of course, these big, homogenous, large tracts of land controlled mm-hmm. by very few companies, whether you're talking about seed companies or aggregated companies or processing companies, that is still very much a reality. And what mm-hmm. we're trying to do at Glenwood is create a much more decentralized system, which is what you're describing as the before, right. where what's possible what's most important to us at Glenwood and to me personally is sovereignty. So we talk a lot about food sovereignty at Glenwood and what does it mean for all of us? And and that there's a foodie element to that, but it's actually way deeper in terms of like social justice. So what does it mean to have a region have a say in their foodscape? What does that look like? How do we create that? It's certainly really hard to do in the conventional system that's controlled by very few, usually typically guys who are after a profit. It's much easier to do in the system we're trying to build here in the Hudson Valley where you have smaller farms. They're in direct communication with their consumers. They're hearing what those consumers want. They're able in many ways to grow things like today I belong to one of our participants in one of our farm business incubator programs Choi division grows Asian vegetables uh, mostly for Asian communities in New York City mm-hmm. and there's a, a Indian CSA there's you know that's the kind of vibrancy and celebration of culture and of food sovereignty that we want to see here in the Hudson Mm -hmm. Valley. So a regional cuisine for me is certainly defined by what grows well in your, your neck of the woods. For us, that's in the Hudson Valley of New York. But it's also deeper than that culturally. It's that there's a community voice in what that foodscape is and what um, what and help and and a seat at the table to help define that cuisine, and that's really exciting. So when you talk about having regional cuisine, right? I think about you know what is American food, and when I think about American food, I mean it's it's like hot dogs and hamburgers and apple pie, and that's what the world thinks American food is, and you know you know our version of pizza and and all this stuff that isn't real food. <laughs> yeah. Know? I mean, I, I mean, I suppose, you know, you have grass, good grass, fed beef, then you can make a hamburger with that, right? Hot dogs are usually not good cuts of meat, not something that we should be eating, like probably ever. Yeah. <laughs> but but they are also things that so I don't know that America has a as a claim to our regional food. And, and so how, how do you create identity with that? Because you know, you think about the Italians, you know, Mediterranean and, you know, even go so far as Israelis and, and the, um, you know, hummus and, and the, the Middle, Middle Eastern food and falafel and that you can go anywhere in New York City and get regional food. Mm-hmm. But it might not be New York City food. Right. It might be Indian food or it might be Asian food, you know. So what's the answer here? Yeah. I mean, I I think Americans have an interesting identity crisis in general, right? So, and what's beautiful in my view about this country is that there's folks from all 
all over the world who are part of our society. And that hodgepodge of cuisine is like like nowhere else in the world. Like it's hard to get some of the cuisines you just mentioned in, in regions that kind of are true to their heritage. So I think that's to be amplified and celebrated and part of the identity of an American cuisine, that it is made up of all kinds of inherited and transported, migrated cultures. For, you know, for the Hudson Valley in particular, or for different regions, certainly there's a California cuisine, fresh, beautiful, seasonal, you know, close to harvest, healthy, clean. That's like, you know, that's great. And you can, and then you can take any spin on that you want, but that's certainly there. And I, and I think the Hudson Valley and other regions, you know, Southern regions are, are moving in that direction, starting with what grows really, really well there. But it's ever evolving. I mean, we're just about to launch a program here at Glenwood that is going to foster local production of grains and staples. Traditionally, we've gotten our grains and beans and stuff from other parts of the country. So what is a New York-based grains and staples look like? And we, and some of that is experimentation. What mm-hmm. grains grow well here? What what kind of bread should we be um, eating that's emblematic of the Hudson Valley that's different than what you're what you're going to get in the plains of the Midwest. That's really exciting. Well, you know, I grew up in Washington State, and we would drive to see my grandparents, and there were always wheat fields on the way from where we grew, where I grew up in southeastern Washington State, and then to where they lived, which was on the border of Idaho. And my dad would, you know, drive us and stop, and we like take wheat kernels and eat them. And, you know, that was before Monsanto and, and Roundup Ready anything. And now, you know, I, I mean, I haven't been back there in, in, in many years, but, you know, the thought of, I've never seen a wheat field in New York. You know, that's not saying, and I haven't, there might be some up, up north, but I just, I've never seen a wheat field. I've seen a lot of apples. Yeah. It's coming. They're right. there. And they're, I think um, there's really, there's there's great interest in doing more. And actually, the Pacific Northwest is a great example of an, a region that has reclaimed wheat production recently. And Oregon State has some awesome work that we're partnering with and replicating here in New York. And they have a great lab where bakers and tasters can experiment with different different grains and create beautiful food. I mean, you know, yeah, there, I guess there is a stereotype of the, the, the hamburger is such a great symbol of everything that's wrong with an American diet, <laughs> basically, <laughs> from the white, typical white bread that's been pumped full of God knows what, that really doesn't even come close to what whole wheat bread is, yeah. to the ketchup, which is basically just red sugar, you know, to the meat patty, which is you know, nine times out of 10 going to come from a confined animal feeding operation and like mass produced meat, you know, it's like, if you can kind of take every part of that and think about why we as a country need to rethink food in Mm. many ways, and embrace some of the wonderful work that's being done. And because of Glenwood, but because of other regions who are part of this good food movement. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of listeners in California and Texas. And the one thing would be if we could give them some resources for where, you know, their their local areas, like what, you know, how they can find 
regional cuisine or, or at least, yeah. you know, farms that are small? Yeah. I mean, there's, I think one of the best ways to participate in your local food movement is by joining a CSA and CSA stands for community supported agriculture. And typically how a CSA works is you buy in one lump sum, you subscribe to a season and then you're really a shareholder. Essentially, you're an investor in that farm. The farmer is psyched because they get the cash when they need it, which is in the off season. So they use that to buy their tools and their equipment and labor, and they know how much income they're going to have throughout the... So it's a pretty simple business model. Works really well, especially for new entry farmers just getting into business. And then each week, typically, you get your share, the return on your investment. You get part of the harvest. Mm. And... So you can, there's websites where you can find um, your local CSA and they have drop-offs in cities. So it doesn't, it's not like you have to live, live next door to your farm. There's plenty of drop-offs in New York City and San Francisco and Boston and Austin. And the health benefits of that have not been studied thoroughly, but the one, the few studies that have been done are pretty impressive. Like doctor visits cut in half after just one season. Wow. Co-payments of medication, especially for diet-related illnesses, significant drop. So you're you're sort of, you know, you're put on a basically a local regional diet. And it does a couple of things. One, you're going to eat more fruits and vegetables. Those studies have been done. That's that's pretty easy. The interesting work, this is the work of Jennifer Wilkins at Cornell, is that I learned is that the numbers of fruits and vegetables is important, obviously, but actually the diversity of those fruits and vegetables is important. Mm -hmm. So if you're eating tons of broccoli every day and you might be hitting your servings, you're just getting what broccoli can give you. So the spectrum you get through CSA as a season unfolds, and this is just for vegetables, is can be really beneficial. So that's her interesting work. And now there's all kinds of CSAs. Like you can, like I said, Said, I, I belong to some that specialize in certain vegetables, but you can do a meat CSA, you can do dairy CSAs, grain CSAs, cheese CSAs. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, it's a, it is a really great business model because you're just going to pay for it and then you're going to get what whatever gets produced. It's also a small risk if the, if the farm fails, but yeah. you know that just goes with the place, right? Yeah, it's the risk or you get like, you know, the you're in it with the farmer. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we had an awesome year last year and the actual price per share was way higher because we put some deer fencing up. We didn't have as many pests and our farmers are getting more savvy. And so you actually was a win for the customer. Doesn't always happen. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because with COVID, we've seen a rise in uh, home farming and I was the first one on my block to have a front yard farm, uh, not farm, but you know, a little garden patch. Yeah. And when it went up, and that was back in, I want to say March of 2014. And I already had a pretty successful plot in the back. And so we put one in the front because it has full sun. My next door neighbor came to me and said, move it. And I'm like, mm, no. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I said, you know, this is this is food. I said, I can take my lawn and turn it into food if I want. And it's yeah. okay. And, and I don't, I don't have to answer you or anyone else. We don't have a homeowners association. And now I've seen uh, multiple farms, you know, are not, you know, garden patches or, or plots or vegetable plots in others, you know, 
in my neighborhood and I was the first to do it. And, and so they, they, they were up in arms. I mean, I, apparently they went around to people in the neighborhood and wanted me to do something about it. And I just laughed at them. Like, I, no, I mean, cause it's a pretty big, it's like, eight, you know, 12 by six feet or something. I mean, it's not a small thing. And he's like, well, can you move it? I'm like, uh, no, I'm Good not going to move you. it. You know, I mean, geez. Yeah. I mean, that's even the gall you know, of the neighbor. Right. And then I've heard stories of people doing that and, you know, they a- end up having like a mini CSA. Like people come and like pay the, le- the homeowner to pick their tomatoes for the afternoon or. Yeah. So it's just interesting that, you know, it reminds me of when we first started working on putting a garden in Harvard, in Har- on Harvard's campus. There was some pushback about what that would look like, what that would feel like, would people just come in and pick it? Blah, 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 blah. And now yeah. it's like a shining, they love the garden. It's like beautiful and people are psyched. So yeah. it's, just, it's yeah. hard to be that pioneer, but well, I'm glad just, you did it. What, what makes me think, you know, it, it makes me think about change, right? And change, change is always hard. And, you know, you think about the Eiffel Tower, when the Eiffel Tower went up, it was this big, ugly thing that nobody wanted. I mean, there was, it was a lot of controversy, and it was supposed to come down. And now it is the iconic symbol of Paris. And so ch- it's, it's just changes, change is one of those things that people always want to keep things the same, because that's what the way our brains work. Yeah. But oftentimes change is better. Yeah. And what a year of change. You know, so you talk about uh, the pandemic, how it inspired people to grow more, which is so fabulous. And that's absolutely true. It also inspired people to find their local farms. So our the farmers that we work with throughout the Hudson Valley had more customers than they've ever had. And and it was a record breaking year last year. And it looks like this year. And, you know, I think my theory is it introduced people to their local regional food shed and then taste takes it from there because there's no Mm -hmm. comparison in terms of eating fresh you know whether you grew it yourself or you're getting it the day or day of day after from a farm the taste will will make that change uh, you know quicker and swifter and so I think we captured a lot of folks just out of out for them from their perspective, trying to avoid supermarkets and mm-hmm. worrying about a supply chain, they just like scrambled to find their local farm. But we got them now. Yeah, that's great. That's yeah. that's really great. So let's talk for a second about uh, GMO and what what is your view on GMO? And I want to say that there are something. And it, I just want to preface it with this: there's a rice that has uh, something, some some needed nutrient in it. Mm-hmm. And that's Golden a GMO. Rice. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's a that's a GMO that is probably good. But then we have a lot of you know this Roundup Ready stuff that you know supposedly has Roundup built into the genetics of the of the the wheat, say, or the soy, and like that might be why people can eat wheat in Europe, but not in America. Mm-hmm. Oh, in terms of their own tolerance. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I'm not a fan. That'll come as no surprise to you, Michelle. Right. But, 
Um, You know, and I think for some listeners, I was just asked this on a panel last night, and there's confusion about hybridization, conventional hybridization and GMO. And so what we're talking about is actually genetically modifying an, an organism. And what that means is that those products are then owned by a company. So just want to be clear on that part of it. Those are patented okay. processes. So if I if I make an awesome tasting carrot through conventional hybridization, that's not GMO. That's just making a new kind of carrot, right, through conventional work. And that's great. We want new carrots. We want new varieties. So what you just talked about in terms of Roundup Ready, for example, I feel like there's three areas of concerns. One, which you just pointed out, is what are, how does our human bodies deal with that? And, and I think there's some work that is concerning, but I think the far more concerned for me is the unintended consequences that has in the natural world. So what does that do to the pollinators? For example, we know so little about pollinators and how they how they are instrumental to fertilization in the natural world. And so as we control down to the genetics of large growing fields of these products, what consequences does that have with how that plant interacts with the rest of nature? We don't know the answer to that. And so I'm that concerns me. Mm-hmm. And then the thing that I think concerns me the most is the patent process and the ownership of those products. Because what that means is you can't seed save from a genetically modified plant. So you're constantly every year going back to the company for their patented product. So it's a little like borders on some kind of almost like serfdom. I mean, I think that's extreme, but you're sort of totally beholden to this company that owns the thing you're growing. And then if it turns out you need to pair the thing you're growing with the other thing the company is producing, you're like buying completely from that company. And so this sort of capitalistic driven ownership of plants that a farmer is growing out for the company, that system really scares me. It's the opposite of food sovereignty, actually. So who has a voice at that table? Not me as an eater living next door to that farm. So that's my take on GMOs currently is the is more the kind of the financial and capital aspects of it. Yeah. I mean, well, I've also heard stories of, you know, one farmer laying down seeds from a, you know, from a GMO and then, you know, or maybe they've leased the land from that company, whatever. And then the seeds have blown onto somebody else's farm. And then that farmer was charged like with stealing or with yeah. you know or having having to pay because but but they never planted that and and I I don't know what the outcome was of that but it, it's it's just it does seem I mean there's a lot of unfairness that happens I think in especially in food and and we don't have to worry about it a lot of people just don't have to worry about food supply here in America because it's just, you know, you just go to the store and get it and it's there. And we just, it's just not something we think about. And mm-hmm. that's, but that's, that's something I think we could probably start to change. Like, what, where is your food coming from? And can we get our stuff more originally? And right. so with that, let's just talk for a second about your vision for what's going to happen in the Hudson Valley, the regional like view for what your dream is there. Yeah. Um, my dream for the Hudson Valley is just that something you just mentioned. So it's a region 
defined by food, where food is sort of paramount to the sense of place, the culture, the connection to land, and is recognized nationally as a place of bounty for good food. Mm -hmm. And really a place where that level of food sovereignty is felt, not only in terms of the farmers having um, been able to make a living wage and being able to get access to land, and but also for the eaters to have a sense of a voice in their own foodscape. You know, so that's the grocery store that you just referenced. We can all go to, but the decisions about what's in that grocery store lie with a handful of people. Mm-hmm. that are also making those decisions based on their bottom lines, not necessarily thinking about the eaters in a community and their health, right? Right. If you contrast that with the vision that I see for the Hudson Valley, where there's more direct connection with your farmers and your farmland, where you have a voice to say, you know, I remember having Asian greens growing up that my grandmother made. Have you ever grown this? And then the next season, there they are in your CSA, where there's a sense of health and wellness and and access to that kind of food. So we are thinking a lot about how do folks who aren't privileged and don't have resources to buy food that isn't cheap have access to the kind of food system that we're talking about, which is inherently more expensive. Mm -hmm. And we think a lot about that these days, and we're setting up mechanisms to be able to help farmers produce food for folks that that are food insecure and that have limited resources and to be able to have resources that help with CSA subscriptions to make them more affordable and have the payments not be one lump sum and all all kinds of things like that. So when Mm -hmm. I think about the Hudson Valley of the future, I see it retaining its legacy of small farms that are viable businesses led by stewards of those lands that care deeply about the soil and the land that they're regenerating and that are part of a region that takes a lot of pride and feels a sense of ownership and voice in the food that that region produces. Yeah, that's really great. And and just to, to have access to that kind of food. And you have a, I know just a couple of years ago, you had some sort of an initiative where people on Medicaid could get your CSA. It's not Medicaid, it's um, we use people with that have food assistance dollars. We call them, they're called SNAP okay. dollars. Okay. So they can pay for their CSA with those SNAP dollars, and that the mechanism for that is that you you only get your you get your SNAP dollars from the federal government in installments over the year. So that one early lump sum that I talked about is mm-hmm. difficult. So we simply created a mechanism where we pay the farmer up front. Glenwood does through a fund. And then as the SNAP dollars come in, it replenishes the fund. So it just makes it easier for folks to be able to have that subscription without the farmer missing out on that early payment. That's really great. Now, let's say somebody here goes out and gets a CSA and, you know, they've got something in there that they don't know how to cook. How do you, I mean, because that was a a problem that we had um, was that, you know, we were getting things like turnips and uh, rutabagas and, and stuff that we didn't normally eat. 
And so how, how do you, how do you address that obstacle? Yeah. So we've, um, by building a coalition of CSA farms here in the Hudson Valley, and that's being, that's replicated in other regions, pulling together the farms that use this kind of distribution method. We created, for example, a magazine that's distributed with your CSA share. And every magazine has like, what the hell do I do with a rutabaga <laughs> or <laughs> whatever? And there's recipe cards and there's how to store it and there's cooking demos online. So there, so we try to, I think that by, but I want to say that for any individual farm to be able to provide those resources, that's really hard. They're farming. They're out there farming. They're not marketers. They're not recipe developers, yeah. right? They're not, you know, putting together graphic design recipe cards. But by pulling 100 or 150 farms together and the Glentonwood resources, we are able to produce information and resources for CSA customers that we distributed through all of those CSAs. So great. great. And, you know, I do think you have to have a certain amount of joy and play and curiosity with a CSA to want to, like, learn. Um, And then once you do, like, so funny because you say turnips and I'm like, I kind of remember my first CSA with turnips in it and being like, what do I do? But now turnips are like, oh my God, turnips so easy. It's just like, you just slice it up and put it in a salad. It's like (laughs) everybody goes bananas about it. So, but you, so you start to learn and then they become all, all, you know, you can pull it out of a hat. Like, oh, I'll deal with a turnip or a rutabaga any day. Mash is really good. Right. I know. I mean, th- th- those are just a couple of vegetables that, that not everybody eats every day. I mean, you know, yeah. we all know what to do with a potato and, you know, yep. because we, they're just so ubiquitous. So we know that eating better affects our health. We know this, right? And we talk, we talk about this a lot at the menopause movement, you know, that, that food is your medicine. This comes back from Hippo- Hippocrates way, way, way back. And the biggest question I have, and I think that, that anyone who does primary care, so the doctors or maybe nurse practitioners who, who do primary care, you know, how, how can they help their patients in understanding regional cuisine and then maybe kind of getting them off medicine? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that the food as medicine and food and health movement has been really successful in getting one on the same kind of basic page, right? Mm -hmm. Just as you say, healthy food creates health. And that's true. It would be hard for me to argue that if you lived in New York and you bought all of your vegetables from Whole Foods and they were grown in California and you ate, you know, a really plant-based diet, that those health outcomes wouldn't be as good as mine, for example, where I eat pretty much almost all locally. But I think, so I think that the benefits come from a couple of different a couple of different things. One is the freshness of the food that you're eating. So that that does have more nutrients and uh, is better for you. Another is sort of that spectrum as the season unfolds that I talked about, those diversity of, of fruits and vegetables. And But a lot of it is about pleasure and joy and community <laughs> and place. I don't discount those for things like health and wellness. I think that makes a big difference. When people come, I see customers come up and pick up their CSA. Sometimes they'll have their kids in tow. They're looking at this head of lettuce that was just picked. It's gorgeous. It looks almost like a rose, right? It has like dark center with the green leaves unfolding. The kids are loving it. They want to eat it. 
They want to take part in it. The farmer's right there talking about it. You know, it is, that is a, is a different experience. And the fact that CSAs are just as affordable as going to the grocery store is also a big difference in that you can have that experience and it doesn't cost anymore to have that very special Yeah, no, I I think that's really good. So I think the big take home point here is that you join a CSA, you're going to get fresher vegetables and- It's not any more expensive than going to the store to get, you know, farm grown stuff from California or Peru or, you know, wherever. So that's, that's something to really, to really think about. And I mean, if people don't want to play with all of the stuff you get in a CSA, there's other, you know, farmers markets are great ways to tap into your local food scene. They're in, again, have have increased during the pandemic because people felt more safe outside at a farmer's market than in the grocery store. Mm -hmm. Finding out where your local farms are and if they have farm stores, most farms do, and just patronizing them that way. So there's there's other ways to get, you know, really great local food without signing up for a CSA. And, you know, if you just Google wherever you are and farms and CSA, you're going to find your local farms. Right. Um, and and farmers markets have been around for a long time. I mean, there's usually a farmers market on a Saturday morning all through the growing season and sometimes even outside the growing season because they, you know, because of technology. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I so, think, it, you know, I think for the physicians and healthcare providers who are, who are giving advice to their patients, a CSA prescription is not a bad idea. I mean, yeah. uh, that again, there haven't been very many studies done, but it's pretty compelling, you know, people going off heart disease medication after mm-hmm. a couple seasons because they're just it becomes part of your life and change is hard as you said yeah. you know it's hard to kind of embrace that and and but it's also can be fun and exciting and something you share with your family what do i do with this watch the video pull out the cookbook right. here we are we're doing this thing and you know like any like as you know when those folks start to reap the benefits of health pretty compelling yeah no that's true and and just eating more you know whole real food is going to change your life it, when you stop the seed oils and when you stop the you know a lot of the sugars that are you know kind of s- snuck into our food then that starts to make you feel amazing. And and I talk about this a lot. I talk about, you know, how seed oils are probably the the culprit when it comes to the diabetes epidemic here in America. It's that mm-hmm. and sugar, you know, mm-hmm. but but seed oils especially, I mean, there's there's full I mean, I've had Kate Shanahan on the podcast and I don't know if you know who she is, but she wrote a book called Deep Nutrition, another one called The Fat Burn Fix, and she's been on the podcast a couple of times. And it's just so important to realize that there are full on branches of science that, that are just there to make soybean oil safer for humans. Mm. <laughs> so right. just don't eat it. I mean, it's, it's right. not safe. Vegetable well, oil is not know, safe. I think this is right. I'm going to say that I'm not 100% this is right. But it is something like 60% of the food of the food that is produced in this country ends up as ultra processed food Yeah, with just a ton of stuff in it. Right. So just switching from, you know, that packaged, branded, and it also gets back to this, you know, it's just eat real food. You can't put a logo on it. That's the other joy of going to your farm. It's like, it's honest. It's yeah. honest stuff. That's true. Yeah. Well, we've, we're, we're, uh, 
we're planting right now in our two garden plots and awesome. um, we've just planted some nasturtium and it tastes a little like pepper. I was, I yeah. was pretty happy with that. That was pretty exciting. And when we went to Noma uh, several years ago in like 2014 when Noma is one of the top rated restaurants in the world, it was number three when we went there and they had nasturtium like all over. There was, there was nasturtium all over that night and, and I'd never had it before. And so now we have nasturtium and we also have, some lemon thyme, which I'd never had mm. before. And that that is delicious. Delicious. I was super happy with that. So yeah. I'm super excited about that. We've got strawberries. Yeah. We've got an artichoke so growing. Great. Oh, got, that's you know, fun. Those are hard. Bunch of lettuce. Yeah. yeah. The nasturtiums grow wild in Bermuda everywhere. So you you it's like part of their cuisine to have. I mean, yeah. I don't there's not yeah, I typically have them in my salads. You just toss them in for that little bit of Oh, that peppery, spicy yeah. stuff. Um, so it's always fun to see them at like restaurants where it's like kind of fancy, but they and they grow so easily, right? Yeah, they don't well, take a lot of yeah, yeah. They don't. Well, yeah, you're right. They don't. They don't. They're just easy to grow. But but yeah, you know, I'm thinking about regional cuisine, and when I lived in California, there were pepper trees just mm-hmm. lighting the block, and rosemary everywhere. Yeah, everywhere, just rosemary bushes. Yeah, I just had a conversation with, this is great for your listeners, Ethan Frisch, who developed a spice company called Burlap and Barrel. Mm. Glenwood's done a, a, f- a bunch of work with him because he sources spices globally, but has the same lens of equity and sustainability and just food that we bring to regional food. So it's like, you know, obviously, no one's 100% regional you ha- you you want some of the stuff that we can't grow here to be mm-hmm. trickled through your your meals and um but he was telling I was asking him about spices in the Hudson Valley and he was saying that sumac is grow- grows everywhere and sumac is a fantastic additive to hmm. um almost any dish so i'm going to try and harvest some sumac. He says it grows all over New York City, actually. Wow. I, uh, yeah. I, know, I mean, I know about poison sumac. We, that, that grows all over uh, California. Yeah. No, I think this is a different, it's yeah. a berry. Um, I'm going to find out more about it. Oh, that's but, great. Yeah. Yeah. But just be careful with sumac people because there is a poison role, I mean, a poison, poison version. Um, okay. So let's talk the, the last thing that you have here on your, on your outline is what role women play in shaping a food system that works the way we want it to and not the way it has been. So how do we empower more women? I mean, women pretty much, you know, the the thing I like to say about women is, you know, we may run the world, but we live, we we still live inside of a patriarchy. And so Mm -hmm. how can we as women like get our voices and make things happen? Yeah. I mean, that is one of my primary interests, um, my time here on this planet. So what's interesting about the food movement is that unlike some other sectors, there are a lot of women leading the effort. And I don't know why that is, whether it's a direct connection with food and women often provide food in households or that there was some pioneers in the field that were women that got some attention. I'm thinking of Alice Waters and Francis Moore LePay. Mm. But there are a lot of women in leadership in this movement. And 
That is fantastic. For example, if you compare that with the environmental sector or the conservation, natural world conservation sector, it's starkly different. That sector has has been historically and continues to be led by white men. So that's one of the reasons that I love working in this sector is because I see leadership in, you know, in, in my gender. <laughs> and yeah. one of the things that I've done with my time is I created a network of women leaders who address issues of sustainability, not just food and agriculture. And we did that because we didn't see leadership in our sector um, that folks who looked like us tons of of women working but none of the leaders mm-hmm. and so what we spend time doing is resourcing each other what do you need how can i help you what do you what is your big dream you know where how can we get that done how can we work together to get that done and really just peer to peer resourcing and what i found through that work is interesting is, again, I have no expertise in this area of sociology, but I sense in myself that I wasn't taught that I could ask for help easily, that I sort of Mm -hmm. had to figure it out on my own. And so I think that men are taught they can ask for help, actually. And part of the work that I do, resourcing women, is about that. What do you need? How, How can, can you Define your needs so that uh, so that you can communicate it to others and ask for help. I, I and think then, that's that's really. Yeah. I just want to say something about that because asking for help is so key to getting things done. Yeah, and there is there is this whole like thing with women, like that women who ask for help are weak. Yeah, and I can say specifically from when I was operating, and I would I always wanted somebody in the operating room with me. And it wasn't because I didn't know what I was doing, because I could always get through an operation by myself. But, you know, with other people, it's, you know, there's somebody to, to bounce things off of. And yeah, you know, sometimes I would get stuck and I need help and that's okay. But whenever I did that, there was always a lot of gossip. Mm-hmm. And I, and, 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 but when men did that, it was never gossip. It was always, it was always, you know, nothing. It was never a problem. And so I just think that that's really an interesting, it's something I hadn't looked at before. To yeah. say, you know, but, but asking for help, it, it, it's not, there's nothing weak there. It's, it's like, how can we get it done faster? The only way you get from point A to point B faster is to learn how somebody else did it. That's, right. that's, that's what we teach in the mental system. I mean, it's like the reason why we have our programs, our weight loss challenge and our mental system, the mental mate program is because, you know, we've, we can, we can shorten that, that gap for you. And that, that's, that's the whole idea. So don't be afraid to ask for help. Exactly. I mean, I think <laughs> menopause is a perfect example. I mean, I I fear that women are going through this kind of fundamental change and not getting advice, not even asking for help, not even asking their friends, basically. Right. Like, hey, yeah, what do, what'd you do? Because did it work? <laughs> Can it, can it, you think I could do that? You know, like whatever it's, and it is, it is incredibly interesting to me that that is seen as weakness when actually what it takes to ask for help is a kind of deep sense of confidence and self-worth mm-hmm. to say, oh yeah, I don't, of course I don't know all the answers. That doesn't mean I'm not smart or fabulous. It just means I, one can't possibly know everything. And yeah. you might know this one particular thing better than me or have, have connections to something that could help me with what I want to do. So yeah, I do think that I love 
hearing what other women need and creating and facilitating rooms where those women can talk about what they need and that resources um, can be gathered and harvested and given to that um, to that person so that awesome work can be done. And now, now's the time to do it. Yeah, definitely. Now, I just wanted to say that if anybody wants to join the CSA, it's, first of all, this is probably not going to air until the end of the summer. So the CSA will be closed. But can they get on the wait list for your CSA? I would say get on the wait list for next season. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, okay. Yeah, glenwood.org if you're in the Hudson Valley. but And then for those of you around the country, yeah, just Google your local farms, Google your local CSA, get involved. There's organizations like Glenwood throughout the country that are trying to make this good food movement happen. And especially folks that have authority and expertise in the health field, we need you to promote this and bring about this change. Yeah. And you can, you could still donate to Glenwood if you, you know, so are so inclined. Glenwood's doing really good work here, but there are probably other nonprofit places uh, around where you live as well. So uh, Kathleen, thanks so much for joining the Menopause Movement podcast today. I really appreciate it. So much fun, Michelle. Had a yeah. blast. Thank you Thank so you. much. Did you know that menopause is not a medical condition? Most doctors don't know this either. I like to say that menopause is the privilege of a long life. And to really take hold of our lives in menopause, we have to unlearn what society and the medical establishment has told us about menopause. This is why I've created this brand new course called Understanding Your Hormones and Managing Your Menopause. I want to show you how you can get on top of your menopause right now so that you can start to see it as the best time of your life. Now, this course is valued at $500 and is in the beta testing phase. And we're currently accepting applications for women to test it out for us at no charge in exchange for feedback and testimonials. But the best part is because you're a podcast listener, you can bypass the application process and go straight to the front of the line. To register right now, simply visit menopausemovement.com forward slash hormones and we can get started together right now. Remember, you can get started right now at no charge to you in exchange for feedback and testimonials when you go to menopausemovement.com forward slash hormones. And I'll see you inside the course. Thanks so much for being a part of the menopause movement.